Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Adloyd. How do we grieve for someone? How does it change and evolve as we get older? My dad died when I was 15 and it took me many, many years to be able to express what I had gone through. So I decided to create Griefcast, a chance to talk, share and laugh about the weirdness of grief and death. But with comedians, so it's not that depressing, I promise. Each time I talk to a different comedian about their own personal experience of grief as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club, this is a chance to talk about the peculiar human process of death. Welcome to Griefcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey Greasters, I hope you're having an okay week. I just wanted to let you know about some live events that we have coming up. So I think I've said already, but we're going to be, we, uh, I, I am going to be at the Latitude Festival on Sunday, the 21st of July at 1pm in the podcast tent, which is called The Listening Post. I'll be joined by amazing stand-up comedians, Tez Idias and Vanessa Hammock and someone else who I am TBCing. Um, also, the London Podcast Festival is now on sale. Uh, I will be there on September the 15th, which is a Sunday at 7 o'clock. The podcast festival is at King's Place every year, which is in King's Cross. If you head to the King's Place website, you can find more information about tickets. There are an incredible amount of podcasts playing this year. So um, do go and get a ticket for all your shows, but especially us, if you want to hear some cheery chats about death. This week's episode is, yeah, I'm, it's a tough one. And I don't mean that badly. Um... As you know, if you listen to the podcast regularly, I have spoken to all sorts of people in all sorts of tragic and sad and horrific situations, Um, but I've never had a conversation quite like this. Uh, This week I'm speaking to the writer and music journalist Jason Green. Jason is the author of Once More We Saw Stars, which is an incredibly moving and beautiful book about the death of his two-year-old daughter, Greta. Uh, as you'll hear in the interview, the way Greta died was extremely shocking and sudden. And I just want to give you listeners context 
because we are talking about the death of a child so that's triggering and I know we say on the show there's no hierarchy of grief and and you know what that there isn't but I, I will say that in this club the room for what Jason had been through is yeah one of the most yeah challenging conversations I've ever had to, to have which I'm sure you'll hear I hope I did his story and Greta's story justice um he is a truly like incredible human being and I say that with all the love for all the guests I've had but what Jason has been through and, and how he's coped in this incredible book that he's written is yeah I mean you're here listen to it don't be afraid of it um I was afraid I was afraid to talk to him and I think there's no harm in admitting that when someone's been through something so deeply tragic you know as a human you do feel like oh gosh you don't want to get too close because it just it's really frightening but it's genuinely one of the most profound conversations I've had and are genuinely a bit life-changing. I found the way he spoke about life and death and what happened to him really, really stayed with me a long while after and I can't recommend this chat more and the book as well. And yeah, you know, I know I know when you read it, you might think, oh God, am I ready for this? But trust me, it's, it's a, a truly worthwhile conversation. So here is myself and Jason. Welcome to Griefcast. I'm here today with writer and music journalist Jason Green. Hello. Hello. Author of Once More We Saw Stars, which I think has just come out. Is that right? It has. Yes, yeah. just now. Has it already come out in America? It has, although only a few days before. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, Have you had to do like a big American book launch or anything um, like that? I did some radio interviews. I went on the, the morning show there, sort of. and oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was on the Today Show. They came into our apartment, which was very... Wow. Um, surreal and yeah. weird. Not bad weird necessarily, just weird. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, there has been, there's been some publicity around it. And so my wife, Stacy and I have sort of re-exposed ourselves to the public eye a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, which that, has been interesting. That must be strange because I know, I know the book is very personal, which we will get onto, but I suppose when you're writing something, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, it's just you being personal, right? And then, you know, then suddenly you're like, oh, people are going to read this. <laughs> well, our circumstances were also unique because the book tells the story of um, the death of uh, of our daughter, Greta, and the birth of our son, Harrison, and the 15 months in between that time, mm. sort of. But the, the beginning of the book is about this freak accident that killed Greta. Yeah. And the nature of that accident meant that it was newsworthy. Of course. Of and course, so I never thought of our that. story had been told already. already. Yeah. When I left the hospital the day after we donated Greta's organs, um, we were sneaking out with the senior hospital administrator leading the way. Wow. Because there were news trucks patrolling the city trying to find <gasps> us. Oh my God. Um, there had already been news reports, um, a picture of my daughter being loaded onto an ambulance that was published in one of the two major newspapers. People were bombarding the hospital, the phone calls, pretending to be family members to discover which hospital we were staying in. Wow. And as we were sneaking out, I looked over at just the cafe to my right where they sell, you know, coffee and gum and morning papers. And in the bin, there's a picture of my daughter waving at me from the cover of one of the magazines. They had taken a Facebook picture and made her the cover story. So we were very much at the center of a sort of news maelstrom. Yeah. So 
there's an extra dimension to this part of it where we are choosing this time to come back out and tell yeah, our story yeah. again. Until this time you, on guess, our terms. Yeah, your side of it and how you want it to be. But so. it definitely felt loaded to open my front door and invite cameras in, you know. Yeah. And, um, which isn't to say that I resented anyone. I mean, I've worked in media. I didn't yeah. hold it against any one person. I, I, I know how yeah, stories work. Yeah. I, uh, there were reporters camped outside of our building. Um, we had to sneak into our own apartment to get back in. People were accosting our neighbors. Uh, there was a guy holding a mi- hiding a microphone in a wrapped up newspaper, basically. And so eventually I just went out and I, I, I waved down the two women who were waiting in a car and just said, come here. Because I knew that all anyone wanted was one statement. And then everyone was going to leave. Oh and so God. I went down there and I waved them over and I read a statement to them. And and I could tell they were grateful because they didn't want to be there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's an awful part of the newspaper business. It's called the door knock, right? And so we were the people whose door was being knocked on. And then they went away. Um, and a news story appeared an hour later that said, shattered father pleads for privacy. And I was like, that's me. Yes. Okay. So that moment came and went. And it, honestly, it was a blip in the larger scale of things with what of we course, were we were dealing yeah. with. Um, but yeah, no, now that the, I've, I've written this book, I've decided to tell the story of all of us. Sort of, it's not just a story about me. It's not just a story about Greta. Um, the title is once more, We Saw Stars. Mm. And I chose that for a lot of reasons. Um, one, it's a quote of sorts from Dante's Inferno. It's the last line of the Inferno where they are just about to exit hell. Virgil and Dante have gone all the way to the ninth circle and they've seen Lucifer in the frozen lake and they've seen Cain nibbling on Abel and all the horrible things they see on the way down and they make their way all the way back up and only at the very end they're crawling through a tunnel. And side note, um, this is not an observation I've shared um, before, but this is a comedy podcast so it might be relevant. (laughs) Um, it came to my attention after I chose this passage that they are not just crawling through a passageway back up to earth. They are actually literally crawling up through Satan's anus. <laughs> but dude, I feel like... They're crawling out of Satan's ass. I feel like perhaps you feel like, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> so, yeah. so, but that's sort of beside the point. But when someone pointed that out, they were like, you know, of course, that's not just a passageway. I was like, let's not focus on that. <laughs> um but so that's the detail we don't need to go into yes, it I, listen look, it's, the book cover's gone to the publishers a now. passageway is a passageway <laughs> that's an really exit funny. is an exit exactly yeah exactly. um so but through that passageway a round aperture through which they see yeah. some of the beautiful things that heaven bears that's the passage wow. and once more and once again saw the stars yeah and that imagery spoke so resonantly that a word to us of the kind of journey we were making where I felt like we were crawling on hands and knees to get back to some version of our lives where there was optimism, where there Mm. was a fleeting glimpse of hope, where there was some version of the ultimate. Um, And I changed it to once more we saw stars. One reason was that I thought it was lyrical and I liked the way it sounded. And the other reason was that the word we was very important to me because Mm. I didn't want it to be just a story about a uh, father. Shattered father, yeah. Yeah, I didn't want it to be a wail of pain from yeah. one person's like bottomless pit of despair. I, I, You know, some of those things were things I felt. And after Greta died, I did, especially the violent nature of her death. I had to contend with mm. the fact that my only child died violently yeah. and meaninglessly. I don't know if we've even gotten there. No, that's, but yeah, that's, that's... A brick fell and hit her yeah. head and crushed her skull yeah. from an eight-story windowsill. Mm-hmm. yeah. 
we start every episode where we say like who are we remembering today but right. we said like it's greta your daughter it's my daughter greta and how old was greta when she died she was two years and 17 days old two years and 17 days and so what what time of year was it when this happened it was may 17th may 2015 17th. wow so you are like whenever i talk to people i use the word fresh and like you know in terms like because i'm 21 years so right. I'm, I'm not fresh anymore like the grief mm. is it's still there but it's you know it's infused with a lot of life around it mm-hmm. that i have lived and when i talk to people who are like yeah you know like fresh dealing with this is obviously yeah this mm. that's still it's been four years yeah that's and we say on the show like the first five mm-hmm. i count that as fresh like it's still sure but i think it's funny because in the non-griefers community people are like oh four years like it can be like right. that's a lot of time but to me i'm like god yeah that's right it's still so mm-hmm. still new so she was two years 17 days yes and um tell me a bit about greta like was she like would would you did you plan for a long time or like was it a surprise that your wife got pregnant no it wasn't at all um i mean we knew that we wanted a child and you know when we were dating we sort of had that conversation in the sort of elusive way you can where yeah, you, yeah. you kind of leave ellipses do you like children or yeah you, you know them? and like it's more like so if you had children with somebody, how old would you be <laughs> when you tried yeah, to start yeah. having those children? Would you be 31? Yeah. You know? And so, you know, what we knew, the point is, is that we knew we both wanted family. We both wanted to raise children. I mean, not everyone knows that. Not everybody wants that. Yeah. So, but we did. And we were married in 2010 and Greta was born in 2013, April 27th. Um, and no, it was not a surprise in any way. I mean, I was in, I was, you know, watching the pregnancy test with her oh, in wow. the bathroom waiting for it to turn, oh. you know, and I watched it turn and she turned to me and, you know, I mean, it was a, you know, a moment we had together. So I was absolutely nothing about it. That was a surprise or a one-off yeah, or anything, yeah. you know, um, it was everything we wanted. Oh. Um, and what was she like, you know, I mean, obviously we're talking about a very brief life here, but like, mm-hmm. was she, because, so I have a daughter who's two and a half. You do. Yeah. So it's funny because I think perhaps if you don't have children, you could be like, oh, like, what are they at two? But there's a very full person mm, there. There is a very full range. Like, what was yeah. she, you know, was she very gregarious or was she, like, what was she into? She was not gregarious. <laughs> she loved people but she preferred small crowds to big ones yeah uh she was more the type to hang back and observe everyone's behavior and i could see her eyes are very thoughtful which she would watch in a room full of children let's say at a birthday party or a sing-along or on the playground her urge was to linger at the margins for a moment check it out how's the vibe yeah and observe everyone and sort of internalize what was going on there and then decide where and how she might join it um she was overwhelmed by large crowds and like big displays you know i remember we we would go to this sing-along in our neighborhood and it's a woman with a guitar and there's all these toys and lots of kids are running up and they're wiggling and jumping right in the center of the room and she (laughs) is next to me holding my shoulder (laughs) gripping it kind of looking around and i could feel her thinking what are these people doing You know, she wasn't exactly a wallflower because then when they broke out a certain, they'd break out like shakers and drums and later on and she would wander over and she'd grab something. So she would participate in a group, but she had to sort of scope it out first. And I related to that as a person. And my wife and I, I think we're both to some extent like that. 
Um, And she picked that up from us, I'm sure, or just inherited it. Um, She was um, extraordinarily emotionally intuitive. If there was anyone upset in a room, it was her sole concern. Um, You know, we would go visit friends and they had uh they had like a little wiener dog named larry and larry was was howling downstairs and greta (laughs) couldn't focus on anything other than the fact that larry was upset um was she talking had she started talking and stuff uh she was extraordinarily freakishly verbal Wow. and we didn't know to the extent to which her her language skills were unusual because she was our first child, yeah, and you we have didn't. Nothing to compare it we, to. We had right? no yeah. point so of reference, like, and do they not always say sentences. We like? exactly, and we'd sort of, you know, internalized this vague notion passed down from other parents that you know maybe girls often speak earlier than boys, yeah, and so yeah. we just chalked it up. But to, but to underline it, like, so uh, she loved dogs. She loved all dogs. It didn't really matter. There was a. Uh, we lived in a neighborhood where there was like a, this sort of dilapidated house across the street and they had a big fence. And like, we never actually saw the dog behind that fence, but we could hear it because it would crash into the fence and bark. <laughs> and we, I mean, we didn't know if it was a Rottweiler or it was yeah. like some sort of very large and not very well treated dog. Oh. So you'd walk past and you'd hear this thunderous crash and just this snarling barking creature. And Greta would go, doggy needs a treat. Because oh she God. just had no fear. So she loved dogs. And wow. she would just, she knew all the dogs' names in the neighborhood. And she'd point to them and be like, that's Louie, you know. So we knew really early on, we're like, well, clearly this is a kid who's going to need a dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I'm talking about when she was like a baby. Like when she was six months, uh, her, her, her grandmother, Susan, who was with her when the accident happened, mm-hmm. um, has a dog named Margie. And they would just roll around. And so I said, you know, all right, you know, we're getting a dog clearly, but yeah. I don't want a dog right now. Our lives are crazy already. Yes. Like, let's put it off. And yeah. so we had this family joke that when Greta could say, I want a puppy, we would get her a puppy. And then she said, I want a puppy when she was 14 months old. No way. And we said, you have to have, say a longer sentence because um, <laughs> that's too soon. No yeah. fair. Yeah. 14 months. I want a brown puppy. I want a puppy. Wow. I want a brown puppy. And we were like, wow, okay. So now it's mother, father, I would like a dog. Yeah, yeah. And I will walk it. And when you can dearest, say that. Yeah, dearest father, yeah. I'm writing to you in regret <laughs> yes. that my puppy has not arrived yet. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's an indication when she was 18 months old, she could sing all of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And I remember we have a video of her looking around and she's substituting toy names in for the words of the song. And it's just oh. like, we didn't know at the time yeah, how unusual yeah. that was, but we're so lucky because she was here for so little time, but we got to hear so much of what she was thinking. Yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? We, like, we got so much of her personality. Yeah, yeah. So, but Greta was extraordinarily verbal. Um, she was extremely opinionated. I mean, all little kids are, yeah. but she had very firm opinions about what was right for her. Um, Stacy said she was a force of nature and she kind of had that energy about her. Yeah. She got the joke that was kind of the saying in the family. There was yeah. like even a sort of sense when you looked at her picture when she was a baby that she had this faraway look in her eyes and she was started smiling to herself about something. She was a very complex little person. Yeah. She had a lot of emotional layers for a two-year-old, to be honest. You know? It's incredible though. And I think it is how, like it, before I had kids, I didn't, you know, I was like, yeah, they're just like, if someone said this is a two-year-old, I'd be like, yep, it's a a small thing like you know what I mean you don't really understand it's hard it is hard but when you obviously like live with one um, you I feel like I can't believe how complex Mm -hmm. my child is like some like the levels of things that are going on sometimes and and it makes you sort of realize like oh they're just of course they're they're tiny humans but they're just human beings the same as Mm -hmm. like any of your friends are or your colleagues or your family right and their reactions are just as real as yours you can't really trivialize them when it's happening in your home you're like you're very upset 
Yeah, and it means it. You know, even though it's just because you know I cut your fish fingers in the wrong way, right? It, there's a pain to this. That's sort of yeah. That's a little bit about about her. Yeah, no, it's she sounds super sassy. I like a, yeah. a sassy little girl. It's, yeah. I think it's good. I think it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And so May seventeenth, you mm-hmm. said. So what? Like, what how happened? did Greta die? Yeah, what happened? <sighs> she was with her grandmother. They were having a night uh, sleepover. Um, my wife and I were, you know, basically dropping her off with her grandmother, who she loved to spend yeah. time with. And they would have sleepovers occasionally. And Stacey and I were going to go out to dinner together and sleep in a little bit, maybe yeah, go see yeah. a matinee and then pick her up. It was just a very normal weekend in the course of uh, young parents' lives. And we woke up that Sunday morning. We went out to dinner as we had planned and, you know, had a drink with a friend and Came home and probably crashed, you know, at 10, you know, yeah. early and slept until 8 or something and woke up and checked in. And what are you guys doing? And they were puttering around the apartment. Um, they were having the best time. You know, Greta had coffee, which was like two drops of coffee and a little mug of milk because she liked <laughs> to drink coffee with her grandmother. And her, and Susan said, um, we're having the best time here. You guys take your time. You, know, you should go see a movie. Uh, we're going to go for a walk around the block. And so we got our laundry together. We, you know, we sat in our apartment for a little while longer and uh, then got ready to go. And we were going to the elevator to get out of town out of our building. And Stacy checked her phone just idly and saw that she'd missed a phone call from her mother. And she hadn't texted her anything or left a voicemail. Yeah. And that was odd. And I said, oh, huh, I wonder why. And then I pulled out my phone and I saw that I had also missed a phone call from Susan with no text or no voicemail. And I had a, a, a funny feeling. Um, so I called her back. And at this point, we're on the elevator, and the elevator is going down. And she answers the phone. And all she says is, Oh, Jason, it's so horrible. And that was how I knew it entered into some new world without even knowing what happened. So you didn't know at this point, you just like. I, I, I mean, well, so she, what happened? Yeah. As she slowly tried to explain to me was that they'd been sitting on a bench underneath the senior center around the corner. They often visited to say hi to the, mm. the, the residents of the senior center. They adored her. And they were sitting on a bench and a piece of windowsill, uh, a chunk of brick, fell free from an improperly maintained eighth floor windowsill. And it fell eight stories and it hit Greta in the head. And another piece of windowsill hit Susan in the legs. And when she called me, I could still hear paramedics in the background asking her questions. And I could tell she was in shock and she wasn't communicating clearly. Mm. So I was struggling to get the details from her about what had clearly been some kind of accident. And it was only when I got out of her that Greta had been hit in the head and that she estimated that the chunk of brick had been the size of her hand that I had some terrible intimation mm. that Greta was never going to come back in any way, shape, or form that we recognized and that our lives were just then ending. All we knew was that she was in an ambulance and that according to Susan, who again was struggling to connect the dots, she had been told that Greta was breathing on her own now which indicated that she hadn't been. Mm. Stacy and I got in the car and we drove up 
Were you talking at that point? Were you just Ah, uh, like, we were completely Stacy was repeating she just has to be okay. There's no other option. Mm. She just has to be. I don't remember anything else. Got to the hospital, parked the car, ran in, told the security guard that our daughter had been in an accident. He waved us right through, and we got into the ER. I could sort of feel it. I mean, ER is an emergency room by nature. Everything there is traumatic. And, mm. But people had these haunted looks on their faces. And someone said, is that the parents? And I was like, oh, we're the parents. Yeah. Someone's waving us on from the end of the hallway urgently. And we walk in the end of the hallway. There's a tiny room full of, of a medical team. And at the center of that, in a table, is Greta. She's in a diaper. And they're lifting her limp arm and dropping it. And I don't remember anything else about what she looked like. She must have had a massive head trauma, mm -hmm. but... I think some part of my mind just refused to take it in. I watched them open her mouth. I looked in her mouth at her teeth. And she was so small and so pale. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to see my daughter again from this. Stacy and I walked out, and I think we both died right there. In the sense that your soul can basically die. Yeah. And I knew my life was over completely. And there's nothing left for me to live for. I just, it was just a matter of going through the motions. I pulled out my phone. I began trying to reach my family. No one answered the phone. I paced up and down for a while. Finally got through to my brother, and he didn't understand. He said, oh, well, that sounds bad, but let me tell you, you know, my daughter got bit by a dog, and it was awful, and, you know, worst day of my life. Mm. You know, and I was like, no, this isn't like that. Yeah. So the next thing we knew... Greta was being taken for a CAT scan, and we were waiting for the results, and we didn't hear anything, and we didn't hear anything. Finally, I went over to where, I was like, where's my daughter? Mm -hmm. And they took me to the CAT scan room, and they pushed open the door, and it was empty, because they had rushed to an emergency brain surgery, because mm -hmm. there had been a bleed in her brain. And then we waited for, I don't know how many hours, somewhere else. By this point, there were two police detectives, sort of hanging in the back one of them was crying and uh, my wife and i were just sitting in chairs and at this point our friends and some of our relatives had come stacy texted some of her friends and basically said greta has been hurt and i don't know if she's going to be okay and after some amount of time no idea how long the surgeon came out and he sat down and he said, I removed a large portion of her skull to try to stop the brain from swelling. But this is the most spectacular head injury I've seen in 30 years of practice. <sighs> and it's very ominous. Mm. Stacy said, so do you think her recovering is kind of a miracle situation? And he said, yes, I would. And he said, I'd love to be wrong. So by then we had entered into this sort of underworld. Mm. We were in the hospital it didn't feel like we'd ever get out. And we waited for about three hours while they stabilized her. And that's when the doctor came out and called us in and told us and the prognosis was fatal. It snapped the last little tether we had just in case. Mm. So we went in and we were saying hi to our dead child. She was on life support. She had a brace on her neck. She had staples on her skull. Mm. And um, the doctor said, we can take her off life support or 
The nature of her injury was such that all of her organs were preserved somehow. Her brain was destroyed. But her organs... Everything else was fine. So you could donate her organs. And it was the only thing that felt easy. Because mm. we were we were sure she was gone for us. I mean, people have very differing opinions about... Yeah, yeah. I mean, violently different about where life ends mm. or begins, for that matter. Um, I can only say that for us, we knew she was gone. Yeah. She was not in her body for us anymore. Um, so making that decision was actually easy. Mm. Um, but that meant they had to keep her on life support for the next 24 to 48 hours and not lose her. And we slept at her bedside while people from the organ donation team worked to find recipients. And they did. They found a boy, a girl, and two grown men. And the morning of the 19th, I believe, they wheeled her away. We took her down the elevator and we said goodbye. And then we went home. What was, I mean, it's a stupid question, but what was that process of, you know, putting the key in the door? to this because the thing that I think obviously I can only relate to my own experience is like when you have a kid there's just stuff everywhere you know mm. like there's you don't ever walk into someone with a two-year-old's house and go oh do you have a kid I didn't notice yeah. <laughs> like so it must no. you know that was covered with her mm. well and we had to send um and this is awful but the the day before we had to give her up for surgery mm. we sent my brother-in-law into the apartment he went into her bedroom, which is just overflowing with toys oh, on the yeah, floor. Stuff that they uh, and we sent her with, we sent him on a mission to get a few things: mm. a dress she loved, her blanket, her favorite stuffed animal. Mm. He brought those with us back from the hospital. But yeah, I put the key in the door and pushed it open, and it was just like a mausoleum in there. Yeah, and nothing in there knew about Greta's death. We were messengers for that, you know. Yeah. Her little red horsey in the living room, her high chair, which is still covered with food. We were messengers for every single, you know, spot in that apartment, which is the only home grad I ever knew. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you said, like, when did the news stuff kick off? When like, we were still at the hospital. So, when you were still at the hospital. Mm -hmm. I can't even begin <sighs> to, because obviously, you know, grief is a very difficult, overwhelming thing. But to have to deal with, like you said, the description you said at the beginning of like seeing her face. And I've interviewed mm. um, people with famous parents. And there's the only thing I can, can think of is, you know, vaguely similar that, that, you know, I spoke to recently Rosa Hoskins, who is the daughter of Bob Hoskins. And she said, you know, like, so the day he dies, like, he's fucking everywhere. And they're playing his films and it's everywhere. Yeah. And you can turn on the telly and you're like, oh, you know. But mm -hmm. it, in that way of being so out of control of... Your loved thing, one's image. Yeah, and the things that can hurt you because, you mm -hmm. know, my like picture of my dad, I'm very in control of when I get to see that and if yeah. I want to look at it. But I yeah. I can't imagine being bombarded with, mm. I mean, that must have been just a, another level of pain. It was just more of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It was just more of it. It was um, at a certain level. I, I'm not sure I registered the distinction anymore. Yeah, it was just yeah. more pain. Um, it wasn't, I mean, seeing her on the cover of a newspaper, mm. our lives ripped from us in so many different ways. And this was a symbolic ripping from yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. It's taken, you know, on my wife's phone, in my daughter's bedroom, post on my wife's Facebook page. Now it's a newspaper cover mm. and my daughter's dead. That was my first experience with 
realizing just how many different parts of my security were shattered at once. Because on the one hand, the universe was suddenly a malevolent place that had sent a brick to destroy me. And it was uh, impossible for me to escape that sort of Mm. magical thinking in the blast site of the sort of death. And it was impossible for me to avoid it, even though, you know, you try to squirm away from thoughts as they come to you because you can sort of feel that they're quote unquote wrong. Yeah. yeah, Irrational. Yeah. Yeah, But they come, of course they do. And then, but it was, you know, descended upon me like, you know, yeah. I was like trying not to get sick when you're getting Mm. sick. It just happened. Mm. I felt that way. You know, there's no way this was arbitrary. It is, my daughter was chosen Mm. um, and eliminated. And we've been punished. My daughter's been punished. Why? You know? And I was black with those thoughts in the immediate aftermath. That was all I had. And so my sense that there was any kind of safety or kindness in the world at the, was momentarily obliterated. Mm. Of course, how could how, how could, could it not be? be? Yeah, and Especially then with in, such in a, a, yeah, a, tra- a tragic. Really, I mean, people say, "Oh, it's a tragic situation." Well, you this know. was not just tragic; it was meaningless. Yeah, I think, which is why I mean, tragedy. People usually the thing about a tragedy in the classical definition is that it is uh, a character's flaw that undoes them. Mm. You can see from the first scene. Yeah, that's that King Lear yeah. is going to be the, the source of his own undoing. Mm. It's destined, and the tragedy is in the inevitability of it. Mm. So in some ways, tragedy is absolutely not what happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meaningless, random violence is what happened. The other part that was, yeah, that was destroyed was any sense of my own emotional life being mine. Mm. I was bleeding out, it felt like, on sort of the national stage. yeah. And that was really, truly awful on the beginning. But, and it's really important for me here to, to, to indicate that there was a, a, there was a next thing. There yeah. was a next feeling. That changed over time. Mm. Because once we were out of that immediate area, I'm telling you about this sort of black hole. Oh, yeah, the absolute shitstorm. Yeah. The eye of the shitstorm. I yeah. call it the blast radius, Yeah, you know? There's the center of that where everything's scorched mm. and then there's the ring outside where you, you know, and the shock waves and time makes you travel away from that. Mm. You don't necessarily go of your own volition. No, no, you no, are no. taken, yeah. you know, through time away from the blast site. Mm. And some part of you desperately longs to stay close to the blast site because it is where you last remember your loved one being. Yeah. It's the only place you know how to find them, mm. but life doesn't let you it moves you forward. And as it does, and as it did, I found my feelings shifting. And what had been this profound resentment at the world, anger, sometimes manifested in the sense that people knew what happened to me, became something softer. Because there's actually something beautiful about the fact that everyone knew Greta died and was mourning yeah. her. So many people lose loved ones in total silence. Mm. Yeah. Or, and their children die in their own homes. <clears throat> They die of cancer. They die of an accident that happened on their watch. They die of sudden unexplained death syndrome. They just die in their cribs. Mm. And people blame you. Um, we've met grieving parents who had to deal with child services coming to make sure they didn't kill their own child as a matter of course. And not only there are you not being held up and supported, you are cast as the villain yeah. momentarily. There are so many ways in which we understood that what we were receiving was love. Yeah. Um, and that came fairly quickly, actually. I mean, I'm a private, it's funny that I would say this, but 
I choose my venues for which I can sort of, re- re- I am very open as a yeah, talker, same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but I'm not someone who is comfortable performing mm. on a large stage in front of lots of people. Um, I'm comfortable one-on-one, mm. but I'm not comfortable commanding the center of attention. Um, and I was the center of attention all yeah, of a sudden yeah. in a way that I had to grapple with. And in some ways I had to grapple with my sense of, well, why am I deserving of this spotlight? Yeah. Um, I know what happened was awful, but especially as time went on and we began to try to forge a community. I met so many people whose children had died and they were left to pick up the pieces all by themselves. Mm. And the world didn't convulse in response to their child's death. And the world kind of did. And so we leaned into some of that because it actually provided some some sucker, some awe. Mm. There was some care to be drawn from all of that. And it taught me something a little bit. It taught me something about the, the worthlessness of what I was protecting, this privacy that I was so sure mm. You know, in some way, giving that up was also admitting that I needed people. Yeah. Um, and that if I was going to heal, the last place I was going to do it was hiding in a corner, you know? Alone, I think. Yeah. It's yeah. a massive thing of mm-hmm. the grief community. Mm-hmm. Finding people that when you say your story, they go, yeah. Like, they yeah. get it. And obviously, like, we're coming from completely different points of grief. And I can't understand your grief and I don't know I can't understand yours either but we we both know what it feels like we know what it feels like what grief feels like a a rip Mm -hmm. but like to find people even in your niche you know like I've interviewed people whose dads died of pancreatic cancer and it's just like just to find that connection and we joke about it in the show we call it like in the club it's like mm-hmm. it's a club that you join that you don't want to join mm-hmm. and my joke is like i just got there very early mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right yeah i set the nibbles up i got right. the drinks ready <laughs> right I'm right here. you like, waited around for yeah. other people to come in yeah um, because everyone's gonna i'm come so in. glad you're here i'm really sorry yeah but, yeah you know. but, like, but i've been waiting for you yeah everyone is definitely gonna get to this club mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. at some point or other and yeah, you know, to that grief community is, I think when you're not in the club, <laughs> it can seem like um, the scary or morbid. But actually, like you said, it, it is so full of love and mm-hmm. the love is raw and it's quite painful love because mm-hmm. it's coming from this place that like you said, the, you know, the site, the site of the bomb drop. Mm-hmm. But it it is so full of people understanding and, you know, that feeling that you're talking about the world going, you know, carrying on it, when you are in grief you're like like how Mm. is this happening but it is also what helps you out like you said it walks you away from the bomb site of like right somehow the world is ticking and somehow yeah you are walking alongside those people and you you can actually i mean that's something very seductive yeah in believing no one understands you yes very seductive because when you believe that you are misunderstood you're also still believing that you are special and chosen mm. and in essence, the star of the play. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm laughing because I'm like, yeah, that's how I felt <laughs> as, yeah. a, as an actor. And, and then, <clears throat> I mean, and, and frankly, that's kind of a child's view of the world. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know? yeah. Which I think is interesting as someone we talk again on the show, like people who've lost um, people as children. Mm-hmm. and people as teenagers yeah adults there's all a very different yeah well and obviously it, you know yeah. like i was a misunderstood 15 year old because i was 15 yeah and then grief happened and i felt more misunderstood it of was course like, it magnified it really this resonates feeling. you're like i already felt like no one got me now really no one gets absolutely me, you know? yeah and that becomes this indelible mark on yeah, you that you yeah. learn to reckon with the rest of your life yeah, yeah. um y- yeah um and i think because i was a happily married person who had you know who had sort of, I had formed in yeah, all the ways yeah, that you exactly. form. Yeah, yeah, you were 
um, who you're going to be. It broke who I was. <clears throat> yeah, that's really interesting. So in some ways, I had to rebuild a, a, around it. Yeah. Um, but I think what's interesting for me to think about is the ways I've changed in very specific ways and in some very profound ways. Yeah, some things yeah. that have shifted in me that I would never have budged an inch mm, if, Greta yeah. had, if Greta had lived. And those parts of me are some of the most profound parts, I think, that in some ways moved me to sort of write this book as a yeah. testimonial to those parts of me. In a larger sense, what I think was really important for me to hold on to is I'm still the same person. Mm. I have the same likes and dislikes. I'm annoyed by the same petty things. <laughs> yeah. And all that's carried forward through it. It doesn't annihilate me. Mm, that's really interesting. I'm not annihilated by this. Yeah. I am me in this. I'm me through this. And there's something very, it's almost powerful to admit that. Yeah. And so the person I carried through was me. I felt like I was broken. I felt like I was mangled. Mm. And I needed to like set bones within me so they would grow in ways that I could live with. And that's kind of, I use metaphors like that with myself. I mean, in the instant aftermath of Greta's death, the only times that I felt at peace were when I was doing something active to attend to the wound. Mm. Because I felt like I had a mortal wound that if I didn't tend to, it was going to kill me. And I, I mean, I was speaking metaphorically, but it was true. Yeah. If I didn't learn to live, if I allowed things to fester in me that I didn't observe as they were happening in me, I kind of felt like this is the crucial moment where how I reset myself will determine who I'm going to become. Mm. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. I find that's incredible that you uh, were able to take almost like a tiny sidestep to the left of yourself and, and look and be like, I had I a weird need to clinical do... voice that never turned off. Yeah. It was almost like a part of my brain. And that's also, I think, a part of me that I had this weird inkling early on. The day um, that Greta was pronounced brain dead, the 18th, um, I went out that morning and I called a dear friend of mine to tell her. I told her what happened. And at some point during the conversation, she reported this back to me later. I told her, we're going to have to find friends with dead children. And so I was planning for my future. Wow. Yeah. In some vague, 
dulled, yeah, you know, somewhat grief crazed way, I was already doing that. Yeah, I think I was just determined to survive. Uh, there were a lot of moments where death sounded beautiful and amazing, and they mm. sounded like, I mean, not killing myself, you know, not the act mm. of removing myself from the earth, of depriving my mother and father of a son, and I, none of that appealed to me. I didn't want to, like, have a funeral. I didn't, sometimes people who have suicidal ideations have these very vivid ideas, I think, about what that would look like. Yeah. I just wanted it all to switch off. Yeah. Okay. It was mostly just, I wanted the cessation of feeling, but that was just to escape the pain. I, I didn't, I didn't want to die, mm. you know? And I think I knew that instantaneously in some bizarre way. And so it became like, in a way, it was almost like I was forcing myself to walk when every bone in my body was still broken, you know? I think it's inc- It's just... The will to live is a mysterious will, thing. Yeah, it really, it, it really is, isn't it? Like that survival, and they call like, it's cliche of like survival instinct, but that, that inner voice is like, get up and walk well and it's fucking calm and that voice is different for lots of people Uh, my the voice was very loud in my head but for others it's not as loud yeah yeah or it's faint or or it only reappears once in a while i mean i had this sort of obsessive drive that animated in me right away and i couldn't really say what it was born out of i mean in some ways i think it was defiance yeah sheer mindless defiance no this will not be how it is yeah you know yeah. what I mean? As if I could will myself out of it. Mm. Um, you know, and but in some ways out of that basic impulse, what grew out of that was a more like sane reasoning with myself. Mm. And uh, what went root was that was I wanted to live and we, we didn't we didn't want our lives to end forever. Mm. Um, we wanted to carry forward that love. I mean, we wanted we had a lot of love. Yeah, yeah. Um, we needed to find a place to put it in the world still. And there was this part of my brain that just never turned off. And I went to my therapist a month later, who was like a grief and trauma specialist. And that was ironic because I didn't know that about her. Wow. And I'd already been seeing this person fairly recently. I'd switched over from another therapist to just out of stupid, mundane, convenience-related reasons. And I started seeing this person. And then I called her and told her what happened. And it came to pass that she had treated many people who had um, been downtown on 9-11, who had had people die and. She had so much experience with acute shock and and catastrophic loss. And I had mentioned to her, instead of telling her what I'd been doing, that I'd been writing down everything I was thinking every day. And she said, I have never once heard of someone who was able to write down complete sentences while in acute shock. Um, And I remember thinking, huh, okay. I don't know what that means exactly, but that seems significant. And maybe that means I should just keep writing it down because maybe I'm receiving something from somewhere that I should be recording, you know? Um, Because I did start writing on the 21st of May. Wow. Um, Paragraphs every day. I do find that really interesting because I remember I I have a friend who's a very good writer. And when I first met her and told her what happened to me, and she was like, oh, did you write it down? And you're like. I was like, of course I didn't write it down. Like, mm -hmm. And the biggest thing for me was, and this is how I feel about all writing and why (laughs) I struggle with it, is the moment it's on a page, it's real. And so I can, I would talk because talking disappears and I feel like talking mm. goes into the air. Yeah. And it, it it's a, for me, it's like a, well, I'm a, I've ended up doing podcasting. It's like a very safe way to communicate. Mm-hmm. And I can, I mean, I can talk and talk and talk and talk to like six in the morning and it doesn't bother me. But the writing it down was like, it felt mm. like just seeing ink on paper was like. And scary. Then he's dead. Yeah. 
Whereas I could just, oh, well, I feel like this and I feel like, you know. Like, it was like Evanescent. It was like you were, he was yeah. still, he could still be here for all you and knew. And I, because, you know, I, uh, I, you know, regular listeners know, like, I honestly think I took me 18 years to accept that he died. Mm-hmm. Because I think I was in shock. Yeah. For like a long time, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, it comes back to being not formed as a person. When right, like that happens right, to absolutely. You. So you're just like, I think I just went, no, I don't really can't really take it in right so i'm just gonna sort of go over here and i had a happy time over there yeah it was right right Right, right. but i definitely think right the fact that you were able to write stuff down i agree with your therapist like for so many people it's such a Mm -hmm. that's incredible that's there must have been such a like you said that's a a strength and a will to go i have to somehow find my way it was like there was like a it was like the whole building had collapsed and there was like a siren blaring out from underneath all that wreckage and i was like oh you know again yeah I think that was the first inkling that I needed to write something. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and it was. And, you know, and six months after that, you know, I and mean, this is jumping through a lot, you know, of but, course. but yeah, six yeah. months after Greta died, Stacy got pregnant. And so it was six months. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, we had sort of tried. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. We, Sort of not not tried. Yeah, yeah. You're just like seeing what happened. Like we're not yeah. not trying, but we're not trying. Yes, I've been yeah. there. <laughs> um, that's how people get pregnant, I can yes, tell you. Generally speaking, yeah, yeah. that's how it works, right? But that didn't happen. And then in a strange irony or alignment, we went away for the first grief retreat that we'd ever been on about six months after uh, Greta died. Um, and it was the first time we ever did anything concrete mm. outside of whatever we were doing just to scrape by yeah yeah and we went on this weekend and we were nervous about what we would find there we were nervous about joining a new community that mm. we didn't want to belong to as yeah. you said <laughs> yeah. yeah um and also i think we were nervous about the language we were about to start speaking mm. um we were deeply skeptical people and we were about to wander into a world that's basically consists of belief yeah, like it's yeah. it's fundamental premise is that you you know it, it it demands that you turn off the part of your brain that demands to know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And that was really scary for both of us because we were very secular people. We weren't mm. we weren't particularly spiritual, but we surrendered ourselves to it because we were in pain, and it mm. was it was a possible opportunity to find some sort of connection. And, and we were so desperate for that that we opened ourselves up to things that we would never have done before. Uh, there was a medium there, and uh, she was, you know, receiving messages from the from the beyond in a room full of like sixty grieving people. Mm. And I think there was something in the surrender that we gave to that that opened us up in some way. And it was the first moment we sort of glimpsed this beyond that there might be that we might cultivate a relationship to. Mm. It was the first transcendent moment, truly transcendent moment in either of our lives since Greta died. We sort of peeked at her spirit from behind a curtain. And we immediately knew that we, we had to keep that alive. That weekend, Harrison was conceived. Wow. One off just happened. Yeah. Um, and uh, we were not trying, but uh, it, it, it felt weirdly preordained. Yeah, wow. <laughs> um, it felt of a piece, maybe more than preordained. It mm. felt like it was of a piece with this larger experience, like he'd snuck through from under that curtain that had, that had, that had opened. <laughs> Yeah, You know, because I, I think very, and I write about this a lot, mm-hmm. I think of birth and death as being basically differing we talk about this entrances the to the time. same oblivion, yeah. right? Yeah. And Harrison emerged from the same place Greta went. Yeah. You know, and so when Stacy was pregnant with Harrison, I would talk to him and to her all the time. Wow. 
because I was very conscious of the fact that they were in the same place for the only time in their lives. You know? That's insanely, profoundly beautiful. Oh. <laughs> like, I, we talk about that a lot. I, the, the first year after I had my daughter, I have never felt closer. Yeah, more in grief. Yeah. Like, it, I couldn't believe how, I guess I would say closer <clears throat> frightens me still because it's like, mm-hmm. I still get frightened of the grief that I felt at 15. And mm-hmm. that first year of have, of becoming a mother, I was like, how is this like being 15? How is this the same mm. as grief? How am I back here when a good thing has happened? Like, right. I couldn't believe how similar it is. And Clover Stroud, who's another writer, she, yeah. um, do you know her? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she talks about, um, you know, awful thing that happened with her mother. And then I think it was her fourth child. And I think her mother had died by this point. And she said she was like in the throes of absolute labor and, you know, just mm. absolutely going. And she was like, my mother was there. Yeah. And she was like, you know, the, it just felt like, and whatever, you know, whatever you believe, obviously everybody's welcome to believe what they want. But for her, she was like, the doors opened at that point mm-hmm. and she couldn't get the baby out. And then her, she said, my mother was there and she was like, you can do this. And, mm-hmm. and I think like, yeah, I think where you put it just there was really nice of like, they are so bizarrely similar and it wasn't until i had a child that i was like why is no one admitting that this is really that they are mm. of course the same there is nothing closer yeah to death yeah. it's the only other place that we touch the void and how how was it like with other people with you know you're you've got good news you're pregnant like how did mm. everyone react was that very complicated for everybody and no i'm lucky we were lucky yeah we we're extremely lucky no one in our lives flinched from us when Greta died somehow. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah well, I, I agree. It was. It yeah. was astounding. Because I know so many stories of people who just cannot they can't can't. bear it. Yeah. No. Yeah. And especially that. I mean, such fresh implications for their own children's lives. I mean, this is, you know, there's this holy fear about child death <sighs> yeah. too because it doesn't happen, right? Mm. Or so we believe. Yeah, yeah. And society has, has advanced to the point, at least medically, where children, the world is not a very lethal place for children in, in most countries anymore. Compared to how it was. Yeah, Compared to yeah. how it was, but children do still die. Mm, of course. But when it happens, people are shocked yeah. to their core. Um, and it seems like something must have gone just terribly wrong somewhere. And people really want there to be a reason why your child died so that yeah. their child might not also die. But what's so, like, I feel for you because people act like that about my dad, who was a 44-year-old man. Like, right. you know what I mean? And like, and they're like, oh my God, you know. So young. My, my so young and my dad's only 60. And you, and you think, for you, you must be like, Jesus, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just the way people apply logic to mm. things. Like, there isn't, there right. isn't logic. Well, there's a lot of fear. And yeah. so I, I think that mostly people react with fear and superstition, and that yeah, can be difficult yeah. because what they're really dealing with, and I guess when I say that I was lucky uh, and we were lucky, is that we were spared most of that. Nobody nobody inflicted their fear Great, yeah. or superstitions. I mean, I'm sure they had them, yeah, but they yeah. were brave enough, they were present enough, they were clear-eyed enough, they loved us enough yeah. to to not bring those things to us because they knew that we needed to be held. And they did. They held us up. I mean, we had this incredible community of people who brought food every day of the week, who just sat with us, who talked about silly things with us because yeah. they needed, they knew we needed to pass the time. We treated us in some ways like it was just another day, but, you know, understood that it wasn't. And there were so many ways in which we were just cared for. Oh. And, I, you know, even if someone said something somewhat clumsy, in the grand scheme, it never mattered to me. And we're talking about 
politesse. We're talking about etiquette. Right? This is yeah. not this is not the realm of those things. This is the realm of like great cosmic loss. Mm-hmm. You are here. That is enough. You want to be here, and you've shown up at my door to offer your support. I don't care that you just said that slightly goofy thing. It's yeah, okay. Come yeah. on in. You know what I mean? I think that was the spirit in which we brought everyone into our lives, wow. you know? So, yeah, then when you had the news of Stacey's pregnancy. Mm-hmm. People reacted with sorrow mixed with joy. Yeah. Joyful sorrow. Which I guess, and I'm obviously, I'm only conjecturing, that's nice. The thing I think is nice about it, there's an honesty to that. If people had just been like, hooray, it, everything's brilliant. That's not true. Ooh, right. Like, you know, Absolutely. So joyful sorrow. Mm-hmm. They're not separate. Like, yeah, they're no, intertwined they quite are. deeply a lot of they times. Are. Yeah. I mean, we had friends with a girl named, a uh, girl who was about four years old when Greta died and they knew each other. And so we watched them have to explain to her that uh, this small child she knew was not only was not here anymore, mm. but was killed yeah. and was killed by something falling out of the sky. Which is, it's fairy tale stuff, you know? Like, yeah. It's, I've literally, you, there's literally books with these things written in. Mm. Yeah. It was astonishingly sad but also oddly beautiful to watch the way that a child at that age incorporates something like that into their worldview Mm. i think it darkened her in certain ways but i also think it deepened her and made her so profound and there was something so pure about the way that she talked about it Mm. she would just come over and say i wish greta was still here and not dead and i'd be like me too (laughs) yeah and then we'd call her you know Um, yeah what more can you say what more can you say i mean there's the truth that's the simplest purest truth and so i remember when we told her that, that uh, Stacy was pregnant. She ran around and started squealing. She's like, this is the best day of my life. <laughs> and she drew like a little picture. And she, wrote, and she wrote Harrison a note. Um, and then she was like, she could not wait. And like oh. literally like when, when Stacy was like four months pregnant, she was like, tell me the baby comes out. <laughs> you know? um, but there was something so amazing about that. And then when Harrison was born, she came to the hospital and she was holding him. And I could just sort of see in her face that she understood the meaning of it, yeah. which is incredible. When was Harrison born? He was born August 31st, 2016. 2016. Wow. Oh, my God. Mm. I just like what a, what a, yeah. what a set of situations So there's you have 15 months, 15 months in between wow. the accident that and Harrison's birth. That must have been very hard birth. for Stacey, I wonder, as well, because just the literal physical, mm. the physical difficulties of grief, you know, like the lethargy and the pain and the weird physical things that happen. Mm-hmm. And then... On top of that pregnancy, which yeah. and hormones, which offers you like a whole other world of, yeah. oh, this is tricky. I was worried for her yeah, um, in that yeah. regard because she was entering territory. I, I was not yeah. by virtue of that. That was when we drew closest together. And we spent every, you know, every waking moment that we could sort of together. And we went to um, another retreat. And this is also basically an entire scene in the book. And it's in some ways the spiritual climax of the book. We went to New Mexico together and we went to a grief retreat. And, and this is when she was pregnant. This is yeah. when she was what would have been Greta's third birthday. Oh, so wow. it was, um, yeah, it was April 27th of 2016. So a few months before Harrison was born. We went to this place called Golden Willow. Um, it was run by a man named Ted Wired. And Ted Wired lost like six family members over the course of a few years. And, as you know, he started this this place sort of in the mountains where you could come. And it was like... A place for people to be in grief and they have, you know, body workers and they have therapists and they have shamanistic rituals and all these, you know, and sweat lodges and all these things you can do. And we spent a a few nights there and we actually, we did go on, I mean, what I can, on a, what I can sort of without scare quotes call us a sort of a spiritual quest 
with a, a guy who was both a therapist and a ceremonialist. Um, there were no drugs involved. There yeah. was simply sort of a drum beat and uh, a, a, an invocation to go inside of ourselves. And Stacy and I both had these incredibly vivid visions. And in Stacy's, she was led by a stag to a pond and floating on a raft in the center of the pond was Harrison. And Greta was there too. And Greta kept pointing at Harrison and turning to Stacy and going, shh, like that. And she left her there and she didn't say anything else. And it was sort of, Stacy took that as like, Greta telling her to try to be, she had to be Harrison's mother now. She had to be ready to be Harrison's mother. Um, and so, I mean, we went through this incredibly intense sort of crucible of feelings in a somewhat compacted period of time. What you was know? your visions, if you don't mind me asking? I don't mind. Um, that's also, uh, I was torn apart by an eagle. Uh, my heart was ripped out of my chest and it was dropped in a field. I mean, yes. And, it, and it, <laughs> it melted into the ground and then so did I. And then I felt Greta everywhere. And it became clear to me that when I died, that was where I was going and she'd be everywhere. And so would I. And I woke up in like complete peace. I mean, it didn't last. It's not like I walked yeah, out of there yeah. an enlightened being and I've been purified, but that mark of that never left me. It was a realization that I think forged. The, it was like I was crawling through again to use the Dante analogy because in the beginning, I wanted to call the book in the dark wood, which in a dark wood, which is the beginning of the inferno. Mm. And I felt like that was I was cutting the last bramble loose. And then from there, I could actually see all the way out. You know, so Susan is Stacy's mother. When you yes. say grandma, what was I mean? Her trauma is yeah. her own, really. Yeah. I mean, and and I I talk about her in the book. Mm. I'm very frank about the fact that she suffers PTSD and will for the rest of oh, her life. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and while I could include, I had to. She was our family, yeah, and her yeah. story was wrapped up in ours. Yeah. Um, I mean, as someone who you know who went through all of this and you know has been marked by it. Even I flinched from imagining what she experienced. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know. And I mean, I only offer this as a testament to, um, I'm not even sure what it's a testament to exactly. Um, Susan watches Harrison two days a week. And on the four-year anniversary of the accident, I dropped Harrison off with Susan. I left to go work for a few hours, and they went for a walk around the block. You know? And neither of us even commented because yeah. I think we both knew what was happening and neither of us wanted to yeah. point to it for the yeah. other. She had, she suffers from agoraphobia. She already did. Mm. And this made it much, yeah. much worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She walked with him across Flatbush Avenue, which is this massive crowded intersection to go to a toy store on the other side. And she had never done that before and she chose that day to do it. You know? <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. This is awful because normally everybody, it's normally not me crying. It's okay. <laughs> so I'm normally the one that's like, I got this, guys. I got that. But there's something, um, there's something so um, purely brave about yeah. that. Yeah. And not brave in the like warrior way, but just like so simply brave. You know what I mean? Like the small, yeah. la the small acts are what makes mm -hmm. someone, when you say somebody's brave or strong, it's, it's, the ti it's those tiny things. And mm -hmm. I just... I just think that's oh, there's never a um a truer expression of love like that's mm -mm. just like mm -mm. and I also I can relate obviously very differently to not pointing to things on a day 
mm-hmm. but just knowing. Yeah. And being confident that everyone who yeah, needs everyone to know gets... already knows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't. Although my family would, would always be like, Karen's one is like, do we all know? Does everyone, is everyone on the same page? Like, mm-hmm. Yes, we, we were not talking about it. I'm like, I just wanted yeah. to check. I <laughs> to check in. Um, but I just think, because like you said, I think that's a beautiful way, a, a very excellent way to put it, to flinch at what she must have gone through. Mm-hmm. And um, I think what you're talking about is just the pa- the power of facing something mm-hmm. and walking through it. And I... That's what bravery is to me. That's yeah, what it means. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, like you said, not everyone has that voice. Mm-hmm. And I can relate to what you're saying a lot because I think I definitely do have that voice very strongly in me of like every time very bad situations, you know, I have heard very loudly, get your fucking ass up the floor and keep going. Mm-hmm. And like, that's what my voice sounds like. Yeah. Which is probably not dissimilar to what my dad might have said to me. Um, right. But like not everyone has that. And, and I think especially with the grief... And we've talked about this on the show before because, you know, obviously we're all in the grief club and there's all these different rooms. And like the cancer ward of it, there's is a very specific like... Yes, it is, for sure. You know, like that you... Even though I... My dad was... It was very brief. Mm-hmm. And I can look at someone who was like, oh, they were dying for two years. I could be like, God, two years. <laughs> two years of hanging out with them. And yes, they would look at course. me and be like, but I watched so much pain and I watched this loss. And we have like people who've lost people to who took their own life, which is mm-hmm. another completely traumatic. But what you went through, the like you said, the the meaningless random yeah, the the no words for what happened to you. And right. to to still be able to to look very closely at that and not mm-hmm. turn from it, I think is yeah, incredible. And I, I'm sure you've had people say that to you and I wonder if Yeah, like it must be I'm just trying to get my head around what it must feel like to have people just be like, Oh my God you've been through this thing and now you're so brave do you ever just feel like i just i'm doing what i'm doing you know to you know it's what you said about the grief club and having different rooms like there is no room for what happened to us in the grief club really you know although that's not true there you know especially especially as we've heard from more i mean putting the story out is like it's like it's like palpating the world for other stories like yours and they do they come out of the woodwork i mean you know i've heard story horrible you know i Yesterday, someone said to me on Twitter, you know, that their entire family was hit by a tree and their 14-year-old daughter died. And this was in January, you know. Um, so the truth is we, we, we aren't alone. No. But it, but it's not a well-publicized room in yeah, the yeah, grief club. Yeah, yeah. And so it isn't a place where we knew where we belonged. And yeah. so as a result, we focused on the fact that it didn't matter. Mm. You know, it didn't matter. We didn't need a separate room in the yeah, grave club. Yeah. It wasn't necessary. What was important was that everyone there had experienced an immeasurable feeling. Yeah, 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 yeah. How do you feel? Because we talk a lot about on the show about death anxiety. So I like have terrible death anxiety mm. because from my narrative, everything was fine. Somebody got ill and they just died. So I suffer very badly from, you know, anyone has any ankle mm. pain. I'm like, oh, okay. So when, how long do we have? Yeah, like, right, 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 right. And I'm just wondering because with Harrison, like, have you guys... Yeah, um, we have the opposite in some ways. And I think that there's something to be said there about what her death meant to us. That's a weird way, a weird turn of phrase. But like what what, what the circumstances of her death meant I understand for that. us, yeah, I think. Yeah. Your father died when you were young and needed yeah. him. Yeah. And you were abandoned. 
and death aban- death was an, an agent of abandonment. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it removed someone that you needed to learn how to live. This is, I mean, welcome to my therapy session. Yes, yeah, this is what right? we do every week. Right, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. right. And so for you, the anxiety is probably tied up with the idea of abandonment. Like who else would just disappear from my life? Yeah, it's definitely that the I idea that, that people can. That's what I, right. it's like the people can just so disappear. So for us, I have no death anxiety. Wow. None. It erased all death anxiety I could ever have. Yeah, because it's so... Yeah. I've already lived through something that's worse than death. Yeah, what everyone yeah. says is worse than death. Watching your child, burying your child. Mm. Most people would rather die. Yeah. What's the thing that you say, take me instead? Yeah. But I didn't die. How could I fear death anymore? Wow, yeah. What is there to be afraid of? Yeah, there's nothing. You know? As for Harrison, um, he's alive. And what happened to Greta could not be accounted for. Mm. There's nothing we did wrong. Nothing to avoid. What am I to do? We could either be afraid of everything and yeah, assume that... Yeah, literally everything. Or nothing. Well, I think you've chosen the right Well, the right you know, path. well, we had a child. Yeah. We owed it to that child. If we were going to have a child, we couldn't give it a fearful world. It's not fair. Yeah. It's not a life, really. It's testament to you and Stacey that you mm. had the power to do that because I think... I don't know if everyone could make that choice. I think a lot of people. Well, could I, make I think a we sort of choice. looked within and we're like, if we can't do that, then we're not going to have a child. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but I do think you're amazing people <laughs> that That's you kind. had that Thank strength you. to do that. Mm. What's Harrison like? He's hilarious. He like? <laughs> he's absolutely hilarious. He is like an, he's an emotional window. <laughs> Things just pass straight through him, unfiltered. Like he wow. has every feeling in the world. He. <laughs> He he's like grins wider and laughs more and cries louder than anyone else in the neighborhood. Wow. Like everyone knows when it's Harrison. <laughs> it's like that boy has a lot of feelings. Um, How have you approached keeping Greta Greta's presence? Mm, what have you decided to do? He knows there's a person called Greta. Mm-hmm. He knows that we have a picture of her. Oh. Um, he knows that the oil painting in our living room is called Greta. He can point to it and say that's Greta. Uh, he doesn't know what that means. Yeah, yeah. You know, we he we have said to him the words, that's your sister, but we haven't explained because he's not ready. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And again, I refer to our friends who had a four-year-old. And in some ways, we watched them very carefully. Yeah. And what they learned was that, generally speaking, children ask the questions they're ready to have answered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that when they ask those questions, you supply them with direct answers that answer only the question they ask. Yeah. Because that's all they want to hear. And then they take that away and then maybe another week goes by and they ask you a follow-up question and you (laughs) answer that. But anything more is just like short-circuiting their reality. Like you don't, you don't teach them anything. If anything, you introduce something confusing and perplexing and all they take away is that they don't understand something important. Yeah. And there's something wrong with the world that they can't quite they can't quite. And that's all. They get a vague unease and nothing further. And so we're very careful <laughs> not to. me laugh because literally that's how my dad parented. was like, let me explain everything to you. And you'd sit there and think, I now am really worried. <laughs> like, right, what, is, right. what, what do you mean the governments do? <laughs> like, right. Yeah, yeah. So that's right. a lovely way of. Right, right. That. And so, you know, I, I think it's, a, you know, we're, we're waiting. Yeah, we're waiting. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean. But like, it's nice that he's, I think it's nice to sort of start the vocabulary. Yeah. Like that's who she of is. Course. That's what she looks like. He's and... seen videos of her. You yeah, know, he's like, yeah. let's watch videos of Greta. Like, and yeah. at some point he'll ask us a, a something about her. Yeah. You know, who who is she? Why is daddy talking to her? Yeah, yeah. And we'll tell him, you know. What more can you do, really? That's, Nothing. Yeah. yeah, that's all we got. Jason, it's been a real privilege to talk to you. Thank you for having me so much. It's really been nice. Yeah. Thank you. It's great work that you're doing with your podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> 
You can follow Jason on Twitter at Jason, which is J-A-Y-S-O-N underscore green, G-R-E-E-N-E. And his book, Once More We Saw Stars, is published by Hodder and it is out now. And as I said, I really can't recommend it enough. It's, yeah, it's incredible. And I, I thoroughly hope you enjoyed, well, you know, enjoy is never the right word, but I hope you took something from that conversation the way that I did as well. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. The show was edited by Kate Holland with thanks to Whistledown Studios where we normally record, although this episode was recorded at Hodder Studios. And remember, you are not alone, whatever you've been through. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.